Let's take our Bibles now, if you'll open them to Revelation chapter 4. After 12 weeks of study in the first three chapters of this book, we finally come to the part that most people really want to get to. And this is the part people want to know about. There are a lot of great truths that are explained to us in those first three chapters. But when you talk about Revelation, this is the part where people want to concentrate their study. Now, if we could just pass over those first three chapters and get into this part, uh, we would be content probably because lots of people, when they're studying Revelation, they don't want to think too much about what God expects from us. And as we studied in those first three chapters, especially chapters 2 and 3, the Lord is talking about some things that we need to take care of, some things in the modern church. There are rebukes there that for many of us hit much too closely to home, I'm afraid. And so folks would rather that you skip over those parts. And so instead they want to come here to chapter 4, where the Bible begins to unfold some amazing future events. And the things that we're going to talk about in the next few months, some of them are, are deep things, they're very intriguing things. And people are pretty much content that they'd like to learn some things about the future And they want to hear about those things, but perhaps not be too seriously challenged. But as we go through uh, this part of our study, I think that we will find things that are challenging. We'll find some doctrinal truths that are expressed in the book of Revelation. There are some very practical things. And uh, I do hope that we come away from this study not only with just some useful information, but also uh, just a sense that we've really been in the presence of God. Now, chapter 4 is a, is a glimpse into the majesty of heaven. Of course, heaven is the hope of all believers. We like to think about that. We like to talk about it. We sing songs about it. If a person and our loved one dies, then the preacher, we're sure, is going to speak about heaven. But as much as we desire to know about it, for the most part, heaven really remains a mystery to us. And that's because we don't actually get to go there. We don't get to see anything about it before we end up in heaven. We can't hear any of the sounds that come from there. Uh, As far as we've been able to look out into space, no one has ever seen heaven. And so we just really don't know very much about it. There are actually only two people in all the history of the church that were able to see into heaven before they died. One of them saw it, but he couldn't talk about it. And then the other one who saw it couldn't do really anything more than just to express heaven in earthly images and certain kinds of comparisons that we could maybe somewhat understand. But we really can't understand everything there is to know about heaven with the limited knowledge that we have. Now, the Apostle Paul was the first one who was able to look into heaven. But when his vision was over, he just simply said, I saw some things that are not lawful for me to utter. And that means that he just couldn't talk about him. God didn't give the capacity for him to speak about the things that he saw in heaven. Well, here in the book of Revelation, John also is able to see into heaven. He is allowed to speak about it, but all that John can really do is just whet our appetite. He described as much as God would allow him to describe, but it's never God's intention. It's not here in the book of Revelation, God's intention to reveal to us all the things there are to know about heaven but rather he wants us to focus on and concentrate on the most important thing, and that is the Christ who is in heaven and the one who has a relationship with us. So besides Paul and John, no one has seen heaven. But if you go into the bookstores today, if you go online, 
you'll be able to find some books where some people have said that they've actually seen heaven, there have been visions of heaven, and they try to explain some of the things that they saw. In the year 2004, there was a New York Times bestseller that came out. It was written, in fact, by a Baptist preacher. And the title of the book was 90 Minutes in Heaven. Anybody ever read that book? Oh, one back there. 90 Minutes in Heaven, in which the author was, uh, describes how that he was in a very serious car accident. Uh, he was declared dead by the EMTs. And then he spent 90 minutes in heaven. And then after that, miraculously, he was awakened. And then he was able to tell about some of the things that he'd seen there. Well, the amazing thing about the description that he gives in his book is that it all centers on him. All of the sights and the sounds are things that are pleasing to him. He never talks about having seen the throne of God. He never speaks of seeing Jesus in heaven. And so for 90 minutes that he was able to go there, all he did was spend his time milling around the outside of the pearly gates, uh, talking to old friends and making a reacquaintance with family members and so forth. So the summation of what he saw in heaven was a heaven without Jesus. But I promise you that as John writes here in the book of Revelation, and he saw into heaven, he not only saw Jesus, but all the focus was up on Jesus. He wasn't looking for anything else. Now, there will be friends and there will be loved ones that are in heaven. If they're saved, they're going to be there. But when we get there, the focus is not going to be on the friends that we have there. The focus is not going to be on the city itself. The focus will be upon Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to be, we'll have see things there that are beyond belief. We can't even imagine what they are. But you're not going to be able to miss Christ in heaven. He'll be the focus of it all. Now, someone gave me a copy of that book, and I have it in my office. And uh, I read it, put it on the shelf. And for some people, that might be an interesting story to read. But that's all that it is. It's just a story. And if you really want to know something that's helpful and truthful about heaven, go to the Bible, because that's the only place you're going to get any information. Now, that's a long introduction to the sermon tonight, which means then that uh, actually we're going to have a two-part message on this. I'm not going to get finished with it tonight. So let's get a start. Actually, I just want to read two verses tonight. If you'd stand with me, please. Let's look at Revelation chapter 4. We're just going to look at the first two verses in this fourth chapter. After this, I looked... Behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each one who's come tonight. Lord, as we open up your word, we just pray that you might help us to understand a little bit better some of the things that you have for us here. And we thank you for the study of Revelation and uh, for some understanding. We just ask you, Lord, to just show us some things and uh, be a blessing to everyone here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This evening, I don't have a lot of blanks on your listening sheet for you to fill out. And one of the reasons that I don't is because much of what I have to say tonight is kind of hard for me to distill down into bullet points. And so you might want to just jot down some notes as we go along here because there there are some good things I think we can learn uh, from this first part of this fourth chapter. Uh, chapter 4 begins the third division in the book of Revelation. Now, if you'll take your Bible and turn back, please, to Revelation chapter 1, verse number 19, uh, there, if you remember, we find the outline for the book. 
Jesus is speaking to John, and he gives him instructions. And he says in verse number 19 of that first chapter, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, the book breaks down into those three sections. The first one is rather short. That's where John is told to write the things that that thou hast seen. And that covers chapter 1 of Revelation. And then the next part, the things which are, that covers chapters 2 and 3. And then the third division is where we start tonight. This begins with chapter 4, and it runs all the way to the end of the book through chapter 22. These are the things which shall be hereafter. And these are things that take place in the future. They're things that take place after the second coming of Christ. Now, we're still living in chapters 2 and 3. We're in the church age. Chapters 2 and 3 talk about the church age. And this age will last until the time that Jesus comes again. And then at that point, all the believers will be taken out of the world. Now, I want to talk to you, first of all, tonight about the second coming because that's definitely the next event that we have on God's prophetic calendar. So, number one in your outline this evening is the transition of the church into heaven. Now, John begins here in chapter 4 with, after this. Now, after this, those words are the transition from the second part of the book, the things which are, into this third part of the book, the things which shall be hereafter. And so, here in chapter 4 and then through the rest of the book, all of these things have to do with the second coming of Christ. Now, usually, when we talk about the second coming, just about everybody gets into their mind just one small part of the second coming. Now, we think about the second coming. When I mention that, the thing that comes immediately into your mind is that split-second event when Jesus splits the clouds, when he comes in the heavens, and there he calls all the believers who have died in Christ to come out of their graves, and then he transitions or translates all the saved people to go into heaven. Now, the rapture of believers, then, is often equated as the second coming. And for most people, that's all that the second coming refers to. But actually, the second coming of Christ is far more comprehensive than that because the second coming includes not only the raising of these dead saints who are believers and not just the translation of or transition of living believers to go into heaven, but it also includes all of these events that we're talking about from chapter 4 onward. So the second coming is the rapture, it's the tribulation, it's the judgment seat of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, the the raising of the uh, unsaved that are dead, and then the great, great white throne judgment, and then followed up finally with the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. All of that is in the second coming. So the second coming is not really just one point in time, but rather it's several events that occurs in phases. The entire second coming of Christ covers a period that is at least 1,007 years. Now I want you, want you to turn to a, a very familiar passage in First Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, we're going to look at this just briefly. And I want to show you in this passage uh, that the second coming includes more than just a rapture. Uh, we're going to re- start reading here in First Thessalonians 4, verse number 15. And then we're going to read on down into uh, a little bit into the fifth chapter. First Thessalonians 4, verse number 15. And this is the part that most often is referred to as the second coming. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them 
And remember, the word prevent there simply means to precede. We will not precede those which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now let's go down there into chapter 5, verse number 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now we notice there that there is a chapter division between chapter 4 and chapter 5, and there's a difference here between, or a division between the second coming that it speaks of there and then the day of the Lord that comes in chapter 5. Now, there are some who would tell you or would say that the day of the Lord cannot refer to the rapture because the scripture here says, or the scripture says that Christ will come as a thief in the night. And so they say, well, that that really can't refer to Christ's second coming in the rapture part of it because Christ will not come as a thief for the church. Now, I do understand that point. But I really think that it kind of misses the point because Jesus does refer to his initial coming as a thief in both the book of Matthew and also in the book of Luke. Now, I want you to get all your fingers ready right now. Keep your finger there in in, uh, Revelation chapter 4. Keep one finger in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then let's go over to Luke chapter 12. And here in uh, Luke chapter 12, we find a parable that Jesus uses to teach the people about his return to the earth. In Luke 12, starting at verse number 37, he says, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, He would have watched and would have not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. Now I believe here that Jesus is referring in Luke chapter 12 to those that are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and not to those that are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And that's because he encourages these people to watch for his coming. Now the only people who can actually watch for the coming of Christ are those that are saved. I mean, these are the only people that are really ready for the rapture. And so when Jesus comes suddenly as a thief, that's when his coming sets off this chain of events that takes place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and that part is known as the day of the Lord or and also as the times and the seasons. So what this means is that both of these events are tied together so that Jesus coming suddenly as a thief will catch, in fact, some believers unprepared for his coming. And it will catch all unbelievers totally unaware that he's coming. So the second coming of Christ includes this transition of dead believers and of the living saints into heaven and also all of these events that come afterwards. Now, collectively, that's what we call the second coming of Christ and also the day of the Lord. And so if you try to separate those two, then you get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and the second coming of Christ then would not be a surprise to unbelievers. 
I mean, they, they would be expecting this because they would be aware of the absence of all the believers that have been taken out of the world. Now, I wanted to point that out because Revelation chapter 4, here John says, after this. Now, nowhere do we find that he mentions the resurrection of the dead or does he talk about the rapture. Now, at the end of chapter 3 and before chapter 4, the rapture has occurred. And that's because the church is no longer present. In fact, the church is not even mentioned again in the book of Revelation until you come to chapter 22, verse number 16. And that's where uh, the churches are reminded again, or, or John is told to inform the churches presently about the things that are written in this book. And so then, as an overview of this, when we talk about the second coming, the second coming of Christ occurs actually in two phases. In the first phase... Jesus comes in the air. He doesn't set his feet upon the earth, but he comes in the air, and that's when we have the rapture, when the dead saints are raised and the rapture of God's living people. Now, in the second phase of the second coming, that's when Christ sets his foot upon the earth, and that's when he comes as a ruling king, and for 1,000 years he'll rule from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Now, it's important here in the very beginning that we get all of this straight, and this will... Uh, make the scriptures that we talk about on this fit together as they should. So when chapter 4 begins, we see Jesus as not being on the earth. Now, the rapture has already occurred, but Jesus is not on the earth. He's in heaven, and the events begin to take place between the first phase of his coming and the second phase of his coming. Now, remember this, though. In all these things that I've said about phases... The thing that's very important for you and me to understand is that the coming of Christ is imminent. And that means that Jesus Christ could come back at any time. He'll come in the clouds, and all of those that are prepared by faith to receive him will be taken up into heaven. And what we need to do is start warning people that this event could happen at any time. We don't know when it's going to happen. And so we need to tell people that they need to be ready as well by trusting Christ as Savior. Now let's go back then to verse 1 in chapter 4 of Revelation. After this, I looked... And behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be, which must be hereafter. Now, as I've already stated, we don't have any place in Revelation where the rapture is spoken of particularly. We know that it's occurred because there is no church after chapter 3. But there are some people who do take this first verse in chapter 4 when John says that the first voice that I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me, and they do believe that that is a reference to the rapture. Now, there are some things that we do know about the rapture in relation to this. The Bible says first that a trumpet call will sound. Now, just like John says here, he heard a trumpet speaking. The Bible says at the rapture of Christ that a trumpet call will sound. When we studied 1 Corinthians, we talked about the sound of that trumpet. Paul wrote, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Well, that sounds very similar to what John says here in Revelation. He says, I heard a voice like a trumpet. And the message that that trumpet said was come up hither. So that sounds a lot like what John says here in this book. That also sounds like what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he says that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. 
And as you know, that's where we get the word rapture from the Latin translation of those words caught up. So all of this sounds very similar. Now, we might also note that the change takes, so, takes place so quickly. I mean, the change of believers from their present state of life here on the earth to be translated to go into heaven takes place extremely quickly so that the Bible describes it as a twinkling of time that will pass. Paul describes it as a twinkling of an eye. The transition is so fast that it defies measurement. Now, some people have tried to figure out, what, well, what is the twinkling of an eye? And they say, well, that must mean the blink of an eye. Well, your eye blinks actually at about one four hundredth of a second. And this transition is actually going to take place much faster than that. Uh, I think more akin probably to the speed of electricity. Now, electricity travels at different speeds depending on the type of conductor, but it's so fast that you can't measure that. And so that's the way the, the transition of believers is going to be. So because of this kind of language, people believe that John is actually referring to the rapture there in verse number 1. Now, perhaps that is what he's talking about. But I think it's really more likely that the statement is qualified by what he says in verse number 2 as having the same meaning that he gave in chapter 1. Now, he says in verse number 2 of the text, and immediately I was in the Spirit. And that seems to correspond to what he says in chapter 1, verse number 10. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And so the meaning here would really not be a direct reference to the rapture, but rather that John is praying and he's meditating. He was having communion with the Holy Spirit of God when all of a sudden God's presence was felt and there was a vision of heaven that was opened up to him. But whichever meaning that we decide to take on this, is he talking about the rapture? Is he talking about the same thing that he said in chapter 1? It does seem evident from the, from the flow of the scriptures as we read them, from the absence of the church, from the information that we receive in other passages of scripture, that I think there's little doubt that the church will not go through the tribulation period, but will be taken out of the world at the second coming of Christ. So we're not going to experience all the things that we're going to talk about here in chapter 4 and beyond. So uh, some believe that Christ is going to come in the middle of the tribulation. Some people believe that he comes at the end. But I do believe that he takes us out of the world before any of this starts. And if that weren't true, then instead of us looking for the second coming of Christ, then we would be looking for other events we look for the tribulation. We look for these different things that are going to take place in these following chapters. And so the coming of Christ would not really be a surprise to us, but we could actually pretty much time them, and we could tell when Jesus was going to come back. So I believe, and I, this is the position that I'll take as we go through the study, that w the church is not going to go through the tribulation period. Now, it's uh, nine minutes till seven, and what I want to do right now is to stop the study of these verses. And I'm not going to go any further into the throne that it talks about there in the second verse. Uh, but don't clap your hands yet and don't get excited because I'm not through. Uh, instead, what I want to do, some of you are just packing your stuff up and get ready to go out the door. Uh, instead, what I really want to do, I, I want to back up just a little bit and I want to go back into this first point and talk to you for just a few minutes about the meaning of the word church. When I say the transition of the church into heaven. And I don't want to leave you with the impression that all Christians are a part of the church. Now, as most of you know, 
the prevailing opinion about the church is that anybody who's saved, I mean, anybody who is a believer in Christ, whether you go to church or not, whether you have your name on a particular church roll or not, that you, if you're saved, you are a part of this mystical church. And whenever we talk about the rapture of the church, then we must mean that all Christians are in the church and all are going to be taken up collectively as the church and go into heaven. That's not what I mean. I don't mean that at all. Now, it is most certainly true that all who are members of the true church of Jesus Christ will be raptured. The true church is the church that Jesus started when he was here on the earth. He began that church with his 12 disciples. It is a a church that began during his personal ministry, and that very same true church has come down to us today, and we still have this true church on the earth. It's not an invisible conglomeration of all believers. The true church is local and visible. And the true church is still preaching the very same doctrines that were given to us by Christ and the apostles. The church is organized. It is a body of people that can meet together, and it carries on Christ's commission in this world. And so I can say to you that the Berean Baptist Church is a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this constitutes the body of Christ in this particular locality. The church that I came from in Kentucky, I believe that was a true church, and that is a body of Christ in that locality. If we talk about Lancaster Baptist Church in Lancaster, that's a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and uh, there are many true churches that are like that. Uh, Joey's Church down in in Newport Beach, and many of them all over the world are true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of these people that are members of those churches that are believers, they will be taken up in the rapture. They'll be taken to go into heaven. But it doesn't mean that every single person who has their name on a church roll is going to be taken to be with the Lord in the second coming. Now, there are many people who have their names on church rolls, but they're really not professors of Jesus Christ. Or they are, I should say they are professors, but not real possessors of Jesus Christ. They may have made a profession of faith, but they really haven't trusted him. And so just because a person uh, has their name on that physical church roll does not grant anyone a privilege of going into heaven and to live with Christ forever. A person must be a believer in Jesus Christ, and you must know him personally. And it makes little difference whether your name is on that roll or not if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And so as I say that, there may be some members of Berean Baptist Church, people who have their name on the roll, and they're not going to heaven. Now, I hope that isn't true. I sincerely hope it isn't true, but I'm afraid that it might be. And so when I talk about the church being transitioned to heaven, I mean that all true believers in Christ that are members of local churches will be taken into heaven. But let me talk to you about something else here, and that is I don't believe Since I don't believe that all saved people are members of true churches, I I believe that there are people that are actually have their names on roles of false churches who are true believers in Jesus Christ, that they will also be taken into heaven. Now, there are true believers, I think, in places like Roman Catholic churches and true believers in, in Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches and all different kinds of churches. One thing I know for sure, if they're saved, they got saved exactly like I did and like you did. And they didn't get saved by believing the doctrines of Roman Catholicism 
or some of these other churches. But there may be true believers in those churches and they'll be taken to heaven even though they aren't members of true churches. Now, as great and wonderful as the church is and a blessed privilege it is to be a member of a true church, the church never saved anybody. Putting your name on a church roll doesn't save anybody. Salvation is not found in the church. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And so it's good, it's wonderful to have your name on a church roll and have your name on the true church roll. But that's not what qualifies you to go into heaven. Those that have trusted in Jesus Christ, that is your qualification. If you're a true believer, then you'll be taken up in the rapture. Now, I just wanted to clear that up because when I say that the church is transitioned into heaven, I believe that it certainly will be. But I also believe that all true believers in Christ will be as well. Now, on the other hand, then, those who uh, are in false churches and they recognize that they're not in a true church and they refuse to become a part of the true church, I think a person like that has much reason for concern. If you believe that you're a Christian and you could go on disobeying the Lord by not being in a true church, if you refuse to be baptized, if you refuse to become a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I would say there's much reason for concern. You're the exact kind of person that I think the Bible, as it tells all of us to do, but I think you're really the kind of person, if you're like that in in that condition tonight, you're one of these people that the Bible most definitely says to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And that's because if you really believe in Jesus Christ, your true belief will bring you to a position of obedience. You'll want to be a part of the church. You'll want to follow the Lord in baptism. You'll want to do what the Lord says. And as I say, that would certainly constitute being a part of the Lord's New Testament church. So we could make this then our last statement for our listening sheet tonight, that true belief results in obedience. So are you going to be in the rapture? And will you be someone whose body is changed and caught up to be with Jesus Christ? Will your body be changed into a glorious body like his? Well, there's one way that you can test all of that, I think, and that is you test it by your obedience. And I do believe that obedience will lead us into the true doctrines and the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll get in a little bit further into this as we talk about that throne that John sees in heaven. And what a wonderful thing this is going to be when the Lord comes back and we go home to be with him and finally we're able to see heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the few minutes that we spent together tonight in your word. And Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to understand this and know that the most important thing that can happen to any individual tonight is to know without doubt that they are saved, they are believers in you, they've trusted you, and they will go to heaven. Lord, we also want to make it very clear to people that being a part of the Lord's New Testament church is so important. It's such a great privilege. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity and that you've called us into your true church where we can understand your word and learn the doctrines of the faith. Bless our people tonight, Lord. Uh, Help us in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.